So, Devon uh, episode number 43 with Alexander Yakushev. This is uh, Vijay from Holland. Uh, Rare from Belgium. And Alex, where are you sitting right now? Oh, sorry, I'm having an echo right now. Oh, crap. Oh, okay. Is it Alexa? That, that's how we start. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I think I started it. I uh, sorted this out. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry about that. No, uh, I'm uh, I am in Kiev. I'm based in Kiev, Ukraine. So that's where I am from, and uh, glad to be here. Yeah, actually, Alex, I never mm. really noticed this before, but I was I was going to make a joke actually, but it turns out to be kind of true that your surname is basically Yakshev. Yep. Is that's that a joke is. already, or is that you know? <laughs> yeah, if it is, I I don't get it yet. <laughs> You don't you get have, it. Okay. You have to explain it to me. Oh, I haven't got long, I haven't got long enough. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I I, re I refer into the yak shaving part hmm. of the surname. I am yes yeah yeah sorry it's an it's an absolutely disgusting terrible joke so we'll move on. You, you get one per episode. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> only one. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's uh, get started. I think, uh, first of all, um, we'd like to thank our patrons who have been supporting us. And we just crossed 25, which is 26 right now. So uh, officially, we are over quarter century of supporters for yeah. DEFN, which is amazing. Yeah, actually, it's catching up with the episode numbers. You know, <laughs> I don't know what happens when that, you know, we get to like... If the number of supporters obviously hit the number of episodes, I don't know if we all die or something, but you know, let's hope not. <laughs> I, I've got a few names, actually, I'd like to give a shout out to, if that's possible. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so first of all, in the, in the roll call, yeah, yay, is uh, Fed Reggiardo. Thank you very much, Fed. You have, we've talked to you on Patreon as well. You've been a stalwart supporter. Thank you very much. Uh, next up is Donald Blail. Thank you very much, Donald. It's really good. Uh, and Jeremy Field is next. Um, thank you, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. And last is Alan, but with no surname. But he's at coopsource.org, so that sounds good. Um, right, so thank you very much, all of you guys and girls and all the people that are you know, in between, up and down, whatever you're doing. If you support us, you're awesome. Even if you don't, you're still pretty good. You're, you're like closure. Yeah. You're listening to this stuff non-accidentally. So... Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Cheers. Great. So let's uh, get into the episode. Um, so, uh, Alex, can you please uh, give a small introduction of yourself? Where do you work? What is your relationship with um, Closure? Is it intimate, Alex? Yes. Yeah, sure. Sure, I can start. Uh, so I, um, I work here at Kiev, in Kiev at a company called Grammarly. And uh, I work as a backend engineer there, uh, doing doing the backend stuff, uh, a little bit of front end too, uh, some NLP that sort of thing. And uh, I've been I've been using Clojure for eight years or something like that. So I guess I guess it's pretty intimate by this point. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you, it's so intimate that you're involved in the backend. Um, but moving on, yeah, VJ. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, uh, of course, you know that one of the things that you've been talking about a lot, uh, or at least you know, you're maintaining the blog called Closure Goes Fast. So you seem to be obsessed with performance about uh, Closure and JVM stuff. So can you give us some background about what 
what what is your opinion about closure performance and can it really go fast or if it is going fast how fast is it okay yeah obsessed is the good word uh <laughs> probably not 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 even a strong one in this in this case uh but yeah i uh i've been caring a lot about uh, performance on the jvm for closure uh, specifically uh for the for the past time for the past year or so and um that's uh, comes mostly from from the work i'm doing um because uh like the the loads we have to deal with like the, the amount of processing uh our servers have to do is uh, quite substantial and uh, you know it's like uh when doing web servers web services stuff any any computational problem is at least uh o big o of n problem right so it's like even even if your algorithm is just uh works in constant time but you still have to chug uh some amount of them for every user that uses your service your server uh, that kind of thing so it the performance part at some point it becomes important for different reasons and uh even though the computers are getting faster and faster we most of the time we don't uh get to see that too much just because software is always uh can always eat away that extra performance year after year so that uh the experience remains pretty much the same well at least that's for for that desktop software for the user facing software on the servers the situation is a bit better uh so the the better hardware we get allows us to process more requests to handle more users uh but it's still still important to know what you're doing to know how the underlying things work to be able to extract all the performance from the hardware quick question for you actually on that in your use case is your website you know what what kind of portion of your of your website is kind of dynamic versus you know can be cached can, you know how how much can you do in terms of performance outside of the like the 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 fundamental processing of like you know forms or evaling closure code no because that, that's the, you know those are the obvious easy wins aren't they you know to uh, to cache things and to see the end them and to make things static or memoize them or whatever you know so how much of that kind of stuff are you involved in doing versus oh no we really have to have everything live all the time okay so the thing you're talking about is mostly the the websites thing and uh what yeah, i work yeah. on is more so um i work mostly on the nlp team so what we do is we um we process user texts to find errors in them or some uh possibility for improvement of that text and that involves like processing text in real time extracting semantics from it extracting like uh, grammatical structures and checking them if they are correct comparing them to some baseline and then coming up with some suggestions uh for how to improve that and basically there there isn't much that you can cache there on the high level of course there are different caches uh on different levels under uh, mm -hmm. like under the hood but it's not something that you can compute once and then just uh just return to any amount of users regardless of how many you have and how long have you been uh working at grammarly with closure um so i i've been working for 3 years now and uh the 
I think I started using Clojure there right from the start, just the the intensity of it uh, was changing over time. But apart from Clojure, we also use quite a lot of Common Lisp and Java as well. So I've been mm -hmm. I've been writing some Common Lisp there too, and Java. Okay, and and before we get more deeper into into Grammarly stuff or the work that you're doing right now, so what was the journey before Clojure, and how did how did you hear about Clojure? How did you get into this? Okay, uh, yeah, my story I think it's quite an ordinary one for some some people can recognize themselves in that, but I started programming when I was uh, twelve, I think, and it all started with Pascal and Delphi, and. Uh, I was doing some uh, competitive programming, like algorithmic stuff, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, look, looking back at it, I, I think I wouldn't even call that programming, because <laughs> so I, I I knew I knew algorithms. I could come up with like a way to solve the the artificial task that uh, that that was mostly what was it. Was it um, was it like top coder or something? Uh, yes, some sort of it, but just not not online. Yeah. It was on the school level oh, okay. then college level and um, so yeah that my programs programs worked and they could solve the task but I mean I didn't I didn't use functions I didn't use procedures back at the time so it was just one large uh, blob of code and I, I didn't use indentation <laughs> back then and uh, why would you yeah of course this is, this is the first time I'm hearing I didn't use indentation it's like it's like a feature of a language or something <laughs> Yeah, I think indentation is a nice feature and it's interesting. Yeah, and it, it was in Pascal, <laughs> so you had to define all the variables up front, up front the yeah. procedure. Mm. And since I yeah. didn't use any procedures, it was just one big uh, begin and kind of <laughs> program. So I had like this block of 20, 30 variables with different yeah. names on top. Uh, yeah, it was fun. But anyway, um, when I when I uh, went to university, uh, they taught us Java there. So I switched to Java and that was kind of like... Uh, mind opener kind of thing. Uh, how actually how programming actually works? All the abstractions. Like indentation. Oh my god! Yeah. So actually, yeah. actually, they they forced us. They forced us to indent our programs. And I, <laughs> I still had like this very very strong opinion about that. So I, what I did instead, uh, I, again, I used I used Pascal to write an auto indenter for Pascal code. <laughs> just so that I don't have to to indent that manually. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't yeah. know about uh, good editors or IDs back then too. But anyway, so in, the, in the tabs and spaces war, you're just no nothing, yeah. nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's nothing. Zero width space. You've introduced a new category now. You know that's like, yeah. that's totally it's, awesome. It's, it's it's much better than two party system, right? We need to have yeah, yeah, yeah. For this one. <laughs> Tabs or spaces? None. Yeah, it's, okay. a, it's a fa false dichotomy, right? <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Java Java was fun to me back then, but uh, quite quite quickly I started looking at some other things because because uh, like every everybody in our group was using was learning Java using Java and wanted to to try something else just to to stand <laughs> out of the crowd, and uh, right. I I looked at Ruby and that also uh, interested me a lot because it was very different from what I've seen before, what I learned before. It was very easy like to write these small programs and I learned mm -hmm. about regular expressions. It was also like a mind-blowing thing. 
And then somehow, I think somewhere on the forum, someone wrote about this Lisp, weird Lisp thing, which is like the best language ever. And everyone else who doesn't know, who doesn't write Lisp is like missing out totally. So I looked that up, I downloaded the thing. I think it was called Lisp Box. So it was an Emacs yeah. with uh, Lisp, with Common Lisp bundled together. So I managed to install that on Windows and uh, Wow. Yeah. Back then I was using Windows and it, it actually worked for some for some definition of work. But um, <laughs> I also found out the book, uh, the Giga Monkeys book, the uh, Peter Peter Siebel book, I think, Practical mm. Common yeah, Lisp. Yeah. And like yeah. the first chapters, they were totally mind blowing. I mean, the, the second chapter is where where you get to implement SQL-like language inside inside Lisp. Uh, yeah. Back like then, I understood that I I certainly was missing out on something, and it's like mm. the programming can be absolutely different. And then quickly, I discovered Sick Book, so I tried I tried Common Lisp for a bit, then then uh, played with Scheme uh, a little bit too. Mm. Uh, yeah, but then so the the assignments we had at the university, we had to do some graphical stuff. I mean. Like you have to write a program, but then you have to make some sort of user interface for it. And uh, because there were not many options uh, doing that in common list or in scheme. So I had to do still to do that in Java. And at some point I decided to look something like, is there a Lisp for the JVM? And after a bit of like Googling, on some some evening, I, I found I actually find a few. There is this Kava thing, which is like scheme on the JVM, mm. yeah, and there yeah, is yeah. ABCL, which is common Lisp on the JVM, and there are a, a few mm. a few others. But I also found Closure, and Closure I think it, it had the most the most professionally done website of the of the most amateurish websites for the languages. <laughs> and I think. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think oh that God, uh, at that point I made my mind about what I should try next, and uh, yeah. So basically, stick. you're saying that the the level of professionalism and welcomeness of the closure website got you going. I mean, that, that's. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to be a retweet from Stuart Holloway <laughs> or Alex Miller. <laughs> I think at in, at that time it was on uh, the the PB Wiki or something, right? It's like the, the website was not actually like this at that time. It was built by oh, yeah. uh, Rich's uh, brother, and uh, oh, really? the website okay. was a PB Wiki shitty thingy somewhere. It's basically a Wiki website. Yeah, it could oh, be. It was it was 2010. Or no, so I, I found it in 2010. Yeah. Maybe by then it was actually the actually the the website we have. No, yeah, not the not the one right now, but it's like just no, the, the, the white the previous thing. One, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Was it was it was one. based on a PB Wiki thingy, I think. Mm. Uh, I don't remember exactly. It's called Peanut Butter Wiki, or was some of those those things. And anyway, good times. It was a <laughs> long time ago. Um, okay, cool. So that's how you got into Closure. Uh, so what the what kind of stack are you using right now? Because uh, I I know we spoke a bit about uh, your work when you were here for the Dutch Closure Day 2018, which is I think um, nine months ago, I suppose. Um, so you you're working on um, uh, maybe a quick idea about what your product does. You know that that helps people to put some mental model of uh, Grammarly. 
Yeah, again, uh, as, as I was telling, uh, Grammarly uh, improves its the, the text uh, writing assistant and uh, it checks for errors in writing and suggests improvements in grammar and style and other, other areas. And uh, we have a big team of um, computational linguists and researchers who uh, are skilled in linguistics and in natural language processing. And they come up with different algorithms and kind of like programs to do all, all uh, that stuff. And uh, my role, the role of my small team is basically to give them the instruments to do that. So that involves mm. um, giving some sort of platform where they can develop their, yeah. uh, their algorithms, their code. And then at the same time, it's a platform to ship uh, ship those features, those algorithms to the end users. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, that's what I'm mostly working on. And then at the same time, once those are shipped, uh, I'm responsible for maintaining that, running that in production. So mm. do you have a, like an NL, do, do you have a DSL then for your, for your scientists? Uh, yeah, actually, actually we have, and it's written in common Lisp right now, most of it. Okay. Uh, but we there, there are there are some plans to uh, to move some of that to closure as well. Nice, it's it's a fantastic product, by the way. I'm 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 a happy customer, so I've been using it for for a long time now, especially for my uh, you know writing my all my MBA assignments and all that shit. You know, like it's really nice to switch between formal language and it's really fast. I really like it. Uh, Anyway, I, I, this is not about you know Grammarly doesn't sponsor us, but I'm just saying <laughs> you know, it's 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 a nice um, it's a very nice product, and I've seen so many people using it already. I think there is already a free version that that you can use without any restrictions or something. Anyway, so but um, is it only English, or do you plan to go to other languages as well? Uh, yeah, first th thanks for for the compliments, but and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's only English right now, and uh, there are no hard plans to move to other languages yet. And mostly that's because uh, every every natural language is uh, like they're so much different, and yeah. uh, it's like the the stuff that we learned for English and like the the work that we already have done for the English language doesn't actually help much in moving moving such product to other languages you actually have yeah. to redo it mostly from scratch and that that's like both from for the programming part and for for the just domain language part as well like it's mm -hmm. totally different knowledge and uh, totally different pipeline and uh yeah it's it's quite hard to just to come up with a new language and product like that but how did uh, grammarly pick closure or why? Uh, I think that's mostly because of me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, at Grammarly, it's only only our team uses Closure, so it's not a completely yeah. completely Closure based okay. company. And uh, people use uh, Java as well and Scala, and of course the the front end uh, mm. front end teams are doing their front end things, and. Uh, yeah, so there is there is no closure script uh, something like that uh, on the on the front but end. How, how are you able to how are you able to sell closure to them? Well, since uh, since the 
that the team that I've ended up uh, in used common Lisp already. So I think mm -hmm. think that's even a bigger bigger evil, a harder thing to sell. <laughs> <laughs> but that that also also happened historically. Was that your opening pitch? You know, common Lisp. It's a much bigger evil than the one I'm offering. We'll <laughs> <laughs> make lesser evil. <laughs> We've got a lesser evil. I mean, you know, interesting pitch. You know. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, the the common the common Lisp system is quite it's uh, quite old already, old right, in right, terms yeah. of uh, it's not not outdated. We are actively working on it, but I mean it's it's been around for quite a lot of time at Grammarly, and uh, so historically Lisps are quite popular at uh, at AI stuff, language processing as yeah, well, yeah. Uh, for different reasons a bit for just for historical re reasons because the the first wave of AI happened to coincide with the with the times when Lisp was developed very actively used mm -hmm. and popular and it's not unfortunately uh, it's not like that anymore but uh, some some people are still carrying the flag so to say yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah but uh, Lisp Lisp works quite well for a lot of reasons in this in this task and uh, common Lisp itself is a great language and uh, mm. it's a language that lacks a good runtime, a runtime like like JVM, for example. But the language yeah. itself right. itself right. is yeah. is actually spectacular, and uh, the it's like the environment that you can build with it, and this interactive live thing that you can then give to your domain specialists, and they can work with it, and you can. Uh, you can evolve it, you can improve it, you can develop mm. custom things for them. And they can use it without doing those recompilations and restarts and reloads. Mm. Mm. It's like yeah. it's like developing a product and an IDE at the same time. So that's mm. that when I describe our Lisp system to other people, that's what I usually say. It's like without it, we'd have to develop two separate things, like a production system. Mm. And I ID to develop it, and uh, basically we cut the the development times by half. Yeah, that's a that's a really nice pitch, and and so I'm assuming it's Emacs everywhere for you. Yeah, absolutely, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for common Lisp, there uh, there are not a lot of options. There are a few commercial ones, uh, as far as yeah, I know, I but so. uh, I don't know if if anyone at Grammarly have. Uh, has ever tried them? Well, I, I, I uh, certainly didn't, but uh, Emacs plus Slime works uh, quite well for us. <laughs> nice. So, um, because you have experience in Common Lisp as well, how do you contrast it with with Closure? Uh, Common Lisp is uh, certainly much more holistic, in 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 the meaning that it's like. It's a thing in itself. It was designed from from the ground up to be to be a Lisp, right? Because Closure piggybacks a lot on the JVM, mm. and that involves making making some uh, design decisions, uh, which are not like completely Lisp-like, so to say. For example, like the common Lisp, it has a superior uh, error handling system, and it, it's there. We go. Yeah, that's that's where you're waiting for it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. so error, error handling in in Lisp, um, it's a lot different from from regular languages. And uh, the main the main thing about it is that it's like 
it's similar to just to exceptions and like to, to catch in exceptions. But when you do catch exceptions, you don't unwind the stack. And that means uh, that the program can uh, is able to to go back to the place where the failure occurred and then it's like continue pr processing, continue going from, from that point. I, I can give an analogy uh, that I like to tell. So imagine, imagine there is a factory and there is a factory worker, let's call him John, and he's I don't know, he's cutting bolts from, from, from the metal metal molds or something. Mm -hmm. And then he has a batch of 1,000 bolts to make. And then at the bolt uh, 527, uh, something breaks. I don't know, the, the bolt that he was making, uh, like it got broken. And now this John guy, he has a few options. He can throw it away and then it's like make another one and I'm making the replacement. Uh, he can throw it away and not make a replacement and produce a batch of 999 bolts, but then it's like <laughs> the amount of source material will not be changed. Or maybe he can stop the production line. Maybe he can do something something else. So he has all the abilities to to make a, a fix, but he mm. doesn't know which one to do because he doesn't have the authority to decide, for example. So if if it's a Java factory, then what he does is he throws away all of his batch, he shuts down the line, he goes to the uh, to the supervisor. Yeah, he goes to the person responsible for for the line and asks like, "What do I do with this bolt?" And that person doesn't know, so he shuts <laughs> down the whole building, and he goes to and he goes to the director of the factory, and yeah, he powered powered out everything actually he burned everything to the ground <laughs> and he goes to the, the director of the building uh, director of the factory and says like what do i do with this bolt and uh, the director might have to say something about yeah okay you have to replace it or here is another bolt replacement for you <laughs> but then at that point the john guy stop bothering me yeah, yeah <laughs> he he just quits his job and the whole factory burned down and now the director of the factory has to build a new one and hire all the new workers <laughs> and start the production again uh, so that's that's how java works or closure <laughs> or closure for that for that matter but in something like common lisp uh, so the error handling is actually it's it's split into like the place of the error and the place of the decision making and uh, it's called the re restarts and like condition handlers and what what it means basically is that um, the code underneath it knows how to fix things and the code on the top knows what decisions to make and uh, if something gets broken, then uh, this this error it propagates to the top, and on the top, it, like the code on the top says, okay, in case of a network failure, you have to restart, you have to try again, and then that failed code it continues right from the place where it it erred, and it means not not burning the factory and building <laughs> a new one, it can can continue right from 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 the same place. Actually, the error handling is also very closely tied with the, with the debugger. So if there is no error handling code, uh, and for example, the network network uh, failed, then you, you get an exception, you get a, a stack trace in your Emacs, hopefully you're using Emacs. And uh, <laughs> of course, yeah. 
And what the user, what the programmer can do at that point, he can just click on the button saying like restart, retry that thing. It will not retry the whole, like the whole operation that you use, uh, you've set it to do, but it will retry that little thing that failed and continue. And uh, if there are mm. like already some state in your program, it will, it will be retained. It will continue from the failing point. That sort of reminds me of when Windows gets a problem and asks you to debug it. Yeah. <laughs> Emacs does that too. Yeah, they are both operating systems, right? So there is some exactly. similarity. <laughs> but uh, do you think this is like a because you you dig a lot into JVM internals as well uh, with your investigation for the performance? Um, do you think this is something that can be built uh, like the effect system or uh, the restart system can be built into Closure? Uh, is it, it easy? Yeah, it, it, or is it simple? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a bit of, of both, but um, it is possible to build something like that um, on top of the of the of what Closure already offers. Actually, you don't need much more than just dynamic variables because that's what underneath it. It uses some just stack. Uh, putting putting things on on the call stack and then being able to look mm -hmm. them up, and mm -hmm. uh, I have I have a small library. It's called Perseverance. Uh, it's mm -hmm. in the Grammarly repository, and uh, it actually implements something like that just for for doing oh. the retry logic to be able to split the uh, the place where the the error can happen and where you want you want something to be retried. Uh, to separate it from the place where you want to decide what to do. But to be able to do that for the general case uh, on the JVM, that would be, I think, that would be close to impossible just because uh, JVM does different different design decisions in that regard. Because mm -hmm. Common Lisp mm -hmm. stack is more heavyweight. So by the point something, something happened, something errored, uh, Nothing is thrown out. Everything is retained, so you can actually can actually look the local variables on the stack, like on each uh, each stack frame. That's very convenient, but then it uh, brings a lot of overhead as well. So, if you mm. uh, if you want to write a classic Java program that throws an exception one thousand times per second, which every Java program does, right? Uh, <laughs> then you probably will, would not be able to do that with the uh, with something as heavyweight as common Lisp exceptions. Okay, and because um, the the other thing that I was wondering about is uh, because you're digging deeper into Closure's performance, are there any surprises or some things that you found out that okay this should be better or this should be this is the reason why it is getting slow, or is it slow? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the the thing about uh, closure performance, and I think it it's by design, and I'm quite quite happy about that. That um, closure always leaves uh, it's like a leeway if you if you need if you need uh, better performance for that particular thing, if you want that thing to be faster uh, than it is by default, there is a way to do that. So closure most of the time doesn't make some hard choices like, okay, this is going to be slow because we want this to be convenient, something like that. It uh, it comes to, to many places like to immutability because you can opt out of it. It comes to uh, the dispatch. So you can can call to, you can use interop anytime to call into Java. 
you can use unsafe mm -hmm. math if if the safe math doesn't satisfy you and uh, so for for many such cases you can still drop down to the to the raw thing at least in raw in the jvm sense and use it so i cannot say there were some surprises where i found out that closure does something slower than it should uh, because i think it's just most of the time it's not a problem because i don't concentrate on that much and i just use the uh, the faster thing where possible yeah what about the uh <clears throat> the, the classic lisp sort of scheme things that um that the jvm doesn't have like tail call recursion uh, tail call optimization you mean yeah oh, sorry tail yeah, call yeah. optimization yeah for recursion yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well I, f in my in my practice that never never uh never uh, becomes a problem actually because for just recursive algorithms you can you can do a loop recur thing or again it's like there are there are different ways to write it and as a just as a generic optimization uh, where you do the tail call optimization all the time so that you can elide the stacks and it suddenly becomes faster. That optimization actually comes with a trade-off because suddenly you don't have the stack. So if something blows mm -hmm. in yeah. your face, then you cannot look up like what actually, what, what were the steps that your program uh, did uh, to arrive at this point. So I think, I think there is a trade-off there and uh, JVM, for example, it does a lot of different optimizations to improve the performance for such cases without without uh, taking the trade off of, of the TCO. So mm. um, yeah. And what kind of tools do you use to to measure these things? Of course, there is Visual VM and a couple of other tools that you get, JTrace and all that stuff that you get with the JDK. Uh, but with closure stuff, do you, do you use any anything different than that? So uh, again, the beauty of Clojure in this case is that anything that works for the JVM applies to Clojure perfectly, and uh, that's one one of the of the reasons why I keep using Clojure. Uh, because if you if you take something else, if you take something new or something not uh, as well supported as the JVM, uh, then you most of the time have to dig through some half finished attempts to 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 have the functionality that is available for the JVM readily and a lot of people maintain it, a lot of people work on it. And we have access to that just for, for free, just because, because we stay on the JVM. So all the tools I use, yeah, you, you mentioned Visual VM, it's, it's a nice tool, uh, but it's quite limited in its functionality. So I, I wrote a few libraries uh, we might link on the on the show notes yeah yeah, yeah for yeah. so there is a profiler and uh, also tools to measure the memory memory usage both for the objects also uh, recently did a thing to measure the allocation rate uh, for their uh, for the j uh, the, the current jvm process and then there are also some even lower level tools like perf tools from brandon greg which uh not not completely not really jvm focused uh, but it's there for system level uh, system level debugging system level profiling and benchmarking uh, but they can become quite quite helpful as well there is also a set of unix tools like the 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 generic vmstat and iostat and uh, yeah. all all those tools that many people use and uh, i know what else but yeah, there is uh, just 
a bunch of them and uh, you can you can uh, collect your tool belt and start using using it without having to write them yourself or just uh, spending a lot of time checking what works and what doesn't. Well, what about the, like, because there are some commercial things, aren't there? Also like UKIT and um, stuff like that, which will, which will give you um, profile information on the JVM as well, kind of a runtime and give you like causes of memory leaks and things like that. So, you know, there are some kind of like commercial toolkits like that as well. Yeah, there, there are some. I haven't I haven't used them uh, too much. Uh, I think I, I've tried your kit maybe once or twice. But recently, uh, regarding profilers specifically, there is like a boon of uh, of good free profilers. Hmm. Uh, there is this async profiler, uh, which is I think the, the the best that JVM has right now, and uh, it's. And a predecessor, the honest profiler. So there are a, a few of them. They are quite lightweight and suitable mm -hmm. to be used in production as well as in development. And they give this uh, new alternative uh, ways to render the results uh, using the flame flame graphs, and uh, mm -hmm. which are quite intuitive and portable as well. So uh, I think I think the the commercial profilers can still offer something uh, that's more than than is available in the free ones. But uh, in my work, the, the free ones are often enough. Do you use any um, uh, profiling in the production code? Because recently I started using Tuft, uh, Tuft uh, library from uh, Peter Tausanes, uh, the library that basically measures uh, at runtime, you can, there is a macro that you use that is going to collect all the um, uh, invocations and it will give um, like the list of uh, the, the performance detail of function calls or whatever, like a code blocks. I started using it. Um, do, do, do you use something like that? Uh, yeah, the, the, the Tufte, I think it's called, to, is it pronounced yeah, Tuft? Tuft. Yeah, okay. Tuft. Yes. I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. Yeah, neither I, I. I think it's it's uh, based on, uh, you know, Edward Tuft, Tuft, I don't know, the, the visualization guy. It's based on his name, uh, the professor. Uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, so that library I, I tried it before. Actually, I think I use it once or twice. But there is mm. there are these two two ways to do the profiling, CPU uh, profiling, for example. But it applies to to others as well. So there is there are sampling profilers and there are instrumenting profilers. And uh, mm -hmm. instrumenting profilers, what they do is they modify, uh, let's say, like every every job method. Uh, they put the, some special code at the beginning and the end, so on the way in, on the way out, and that code basically measures the time and uh, it puts two timestamps. And yeah. so between the two, two timestamps, you can get how for how much time the method ran. And mm -hmm. um, I think for Tufta, you have to manually specify which ma which functions you want to profile. Yes, so you you wrap the code block in a in a macro, and then there is a global level one. You can turn it on and off to to make sure that the macro is running um, in at the runtime. Yeah, so yeah. it it works for uh, bigger chunks of code, like for yeah. for longer running things. And yes, of course, if if you don't instrument too many functions, that then that could work. But uh, in general, the instrumenting profilers they uh, bring a lot of overhead. Uh, for different reasons, because the code that is injected, it brings overhead. Then if you try to instrument smaller methods, it could lead to methods uh, stop 
stopping being inline, so it disables some JVM optimizations. So there are some mm -hmm. second-order effects that uh, mm -hmm. that the instrumenting profilers bring, and then the sampling profilers they work differently. The idea basically you stop uh, the execution of the JVM, let's say hundred times per second, and then you see what is on the call stack at that at that moment. Okay, and then you compare with the yeah yeah, and then then you just build a statistical profile of uh, mm -hmm. what your program were, was doing all the time. And yeah. you render that, and that gives you uh, that gives you an idea what is slower, what is faster. So it's it's kind of like less it's less accurate, uh, mm -hmm. but actually the instrumenting profilers are also not very accurate because of all those uh, all this changing of behavior that they do to your program, and the sampling yeah. the sampling profilers don't do that. So I I actually prefer the second ones and. The, the sampling profilers and they also safer to be used in production as well. Yeah, and and sampling profilers are non-intrusive, as in you don't need to modify the code. You just monitor the program from external uh, tooling. Right? Yeah, right. Okay, nice. So, can can you give us some idea about uh, because you, you wrote a couple of other libraries already, right? With the uh, to measure the memory, to measure the asynchronous profiler. Uh, can you give us some idea about what those libraries are for? Yeah, so uh, let's start. Let's start with the profiler. Uh, the, the the CLJ async profiler is actually very very small, very thin wrapper around async profiler, which is which I already mentioned. And uh, what what it uh, gives you, it gives you the ability to start like to start and stop the profiler to run it for for some amount of time. Let's say for ten seconds, and once it's done. It generates you this flame graph thing, which is interactive SVG file that you can open in your browser, and from there uh, understand where your program spends most of the time. So it's it's a small it's a thin wrapper, but at the same time it uh, gives you this interactivity in your closure program, which uh, which allows you to very rapidly check uh, like what are the slowest part of the of the function you just wrote or of the of the submodule you just wrote, and the experience it provides, at least to me, is is very very in line with what Rappel provides in general. So you know, it's like it took uh, it took the industry to invent the whole methodology, like called test driven development, to start people writing small functions that you yeah. quickly check what they do without like without writing this. Huge system, and then just just started for the first time after half a year, mm. right? So with test-driven development, mm -hmm. people people start doing something else, and in the Lisp community, it was there all along, basically. Mm. The, mm. Like it was always always like that. People were writing small functions, they were building uh, bottom-up systems, and with with performance measurements, with profiling or whatever else, it's actually it's it's very similar. So. If if it takes a lot of effort for you to see how your programs how your program is doing in terms of performance, then it's like if if it takes a lot of effort, if you don't want to do it, then you will probably postpone it until the very last moment, where it's like your program takes one hundred times slower than than it's <laughs> supposed to do. But if it's seamless, if it's uh, very easy to do, and it's also 
quite entertaining and rewarding in some sense, then you will you will keep using it. It will just become the part of your workflow. Hmm. Hmm. So how, where do you see, because the, the, this is all based on JVM and recently there is a lot of noise around Graal VM. So where do, where do you see this? this uh, isn't that supposed to give us more performance benefits because it's going to be on the native code, essentially not running on, on top of the VM? Uh, yes, yeah, so the Graal thing, actually uh, one team at uh, one team in our company evaluates Graal for, for some other project right now. It's mm -hmm. an interesting technology. I haven't looked into it too closely yet, but I think um, I think Graal works better for languages that um, that did some trade-offs uh, in the past, like for example, JRuby, which tries to be, more like Ruby, right? So it, it has it has these design decisions that were already made before JRuby came to life, and uh, so that there are there are many things in terms of dispatch uh, that are slower in JRuby and that crawl VM can optimize. And for Clojure, I think it's not uh, there are not so many benefits that that Clojure can reap from Graal VM because Clojure already already had some design decisions uh, that uh, made it made it already fast on the JVM. I think it's mainly just the startup time, which seems to be a bit of a, you know, I, I don't know why people are so obsessed by that, but. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so you, you're probably you, you get, talking you get, about, yeah, you're probably talking about substrate thing, which is like, like a part of the Graal VM package that allows you to yeah, natively compile compile uh, yeah. Java Java program or Clojure program for that matter. Yeah, uh, that one that one is interesting actually. And uh, um, yeah, the startup time for some for some kinds of applications, like for some user space tools, startup yeah, time becomes line tools, yeah. command line tools. That could be that can be important. And for that for that uh, this substrate thing is interesting but there are quite a lot of limitations as well so mm, i mm, mm. i'd be happy to check it in half a year or a year or so when like mm. people more people experiment with it and come up with something interesting yeah yeah but like you said it's not really it's not really it doesn't really help the REPL experience because you know that's something downstream that's more tool chainy than um because you know you can run things in the REPL with Graal, and the main advantage there, as far as I know, is that you can interoperate with with R and Python and and, and other languages. So that's it's this kind of polyglot aspect of the REPL that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the, that that's that's the one benefit. The other one is that, as far as I know, they have a completely different uh, just-in-time compiler. So it's it's not the hotspot oh, right, okay. anymore. It's a JIT written in Java itself, and it's like some sort of fancy thing. It uh, has its own uh, optimizations, uh, which are like more complicated and obscure. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so an interesting. We're going to be better then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, we, did, we did some experiments, some rough experiments with the crawl VM and uh, turned out to be slower than the JVM for just just a few a few tests that we ran, so we postponed that for uh, for now at least. 
But uh, Talk, talking of um, talking of tests that you run, maybe he's coming back onto the main thing. Is like um, if you're running the profiler and stuff like this. Do you what do you do in terms of because you know I used to do a lot of performance stuff as well to be honest. And um, the the biggest complication I think you have apart from you know with with the JBM especially is you can get lots of misreads with um, with just if you just put a profiler on something in your in your development environment you can get a lot of misreads versus your production code because because actually you know the jit does all kinds of things to to make things faster and there's all this kind of warm up activity on the JVM so so how you know how do you kind of like what's your philosophy around kind of um, you know guarding against those misreads yeah, that, that's actually a very good question because with, with performance optimizations and performance benchmarking and profiling, it's actually it's harder than doing uh, just regular development work mm. in the sense that if you do an error in your program, then most of the time it will throw an exception or write incorrect yeah. data or like do some other thing that will be apparent that, that it is broken, that uh, mm. it was wrong. But with performance stuff, you are never sure. It's like whatever mm. whatever you do, whatever you benchmark, whatever you compare against, you never know if you did it correctly, if you if you accounted for all the moving parts, if you mm. uh, yeah, if you did all the good work in there, or you just made some mistake and now you're just reading garbage. So about the philosophy. Uh, the, there is uh, there is this guy Alexei Shipilov, uh, which is very vocal uh, JVM performance. Uh, uh, he he blogger and uh, he uh, he has a blog and he does a lot of conference talks about this topic. Mm. He also mm. has a library called uh, Java Micro Benchmarking Harness, which um, right which I use and also recommend uh, to others, which simplifies some things in that regard. But at least it. Uh, prevents you from doing some silly mistakes. And there are, there are, there are a lot of silly mistakes you can do when, uh, when testing, like benchmarking performance, uh, because right, like you said, JVM does a lot of optimizations. And if you forget that it can, it can do that in that case, then the, the results mm. you're getting are just, uh, just garbage. But his main philosophy about, about doing all those performance things is that numbers, they don't tell you anything. So until, until you interpreted those numbers, until you build the performance profile of the program in your head, and then you verify that profile, that, that performance model against some more experiments that, that otherwise should disprove, disprove your model, then, uh, then you just did nothing. I mean, just, mm. just raw numbers, they don't tell you anything. You should not use them as as an argument, like if something is faster, if something is slower, something works better or not, uh, those are just just data that you have to collect and interpret, and then make some, uh, yeah, some uh, like assumptions, and then prove them or disprove them. Mm. It's mm. like that. So mm. I, I agree with him totally in that regard. I try to uh, to work like that as well. I mean, the, the one I the one I always remember from the Java days was uh, was things like uh, uh, <laughs> adding two strings, for example. You know, was was a was a kind of classic. Uh, oh, you shouldn't do that because it's slower. You know, 
And uh, then it turned out that, well, A, it wasn't that slow for most cases, so shut up. It's actually much, it's easier to read the code where you just put a plus sign for a start um, rather than all these string buffer type nonsense. Um, and then B, uh, it turns out that, you know, I think in 1.2 or 1.3, the JVM had an optimization for this anyway and essentially rewrote your code. So, you know, you kind of like, Every time that you like you change your code to uh, to to kind of uh, compensate for some performance issue, you're at risk actually of of all that code, you know, the complexity of that code being wasted in the future. Because in fact, the JVM will just get better, and you know your your code might in fact end up being slower because you're not taking advantage of the the common case that the JVM people are optimizing for. Yeah, yeah, the, the, that's true. So the like most of the time, or like in general, the more abstract or the more general code you write, the there will be more room, bigger room for optimizations. And mm -hmm. uh, it's like, uh, yeah, there are se several phases of optimizing performance, right? So first, you try to get rid of all the stupid things that you wrote, uh, like if you. <laughs> Like like code, yeah, like code. <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting getting rid of code always helps. That's yeah, that's the ultimate. No, no code is really fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, but uh, right, so you start you start with that until until your code is perfect in that regard. So it's like it does what what you intend to do, and it reads that way. But then, if if it's still not enough, then you start doing all those micro optimizations and you kind of like uh you base them on on the fact how things work right now but in future they might work differently uh and uh, there is there is a trade off there i mean how much in your in your kind of um in your kind of work like how many times do you think or how many, how much code do you feel like people genuinely have to shift around versus the kind of the feel feeling that, for instance, I mean, you know, it, okay, this is a weird question, long-winded question, but do you, I mean, what I find in general is that people, uh, the performance that people are suffering is just because they've kind of put a tight loop in the wrong place, or they've they've done something in a way that is just there's nothing fancy you have to do with the language to make it better. It's mostly just about like understand. Oh shit, yes, that's where the performance is. And now I just need to rewrite it and reorganize my code a bit more. So, you know, it's very, very rare in my experience that you actually have to, you know, go down to the kind of like micro code to see exactly how you should align your arrays, for instance. You know, it's like low latency Java people are doing amazing things in terms of, you know, in rewriting array buffers so they align to the hardware. But that's pretty rare in most cases, I think. Or I mean, do you do you find in Grammarly that you actually have to go along and like use those low latency tricks? Yeah, so that again, that depends on the context, depends on what you're writing, right? Yeah. And uh, sure, most of the time you don't don't get as fancy as uh, just uh, yeah, doing all those super micro optimizations for the for some uh, very generic code uh, for like some REST API or something. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it. Uh, you get a bit of of both, a bit of of everything. Uh, at least I I get that in, in my work. So sometimes it's just some 
stupid code that can be rewritten and uh, mm. it is suddenly just enough for the performance. And sometimes you see that, all right, everything, everything looks as good as it could be, but then it still can be, can be done faster. So we have to do something else. So yeah, I mean, people, people are bashing uh, premature optimization a lot. And uh, th there was a nice tweet recently that those who do, who, who uh, like dislike premature optimizations probably uh, haven't, haven't uh, used any modern software, especially Slack, for example, which could use some <laughs> premature or whatever optimization there could be. Uh, but anyway, I think, I think the, it's, premature optimization thing is also it's quite um, quite helpful in the sense that people who do it they it, it might not not be needed but for example for me it takes takes to do that once on some projects to some project like to do the optimization to see that it didn't work or it didn't deliver the thing that I expected for it or maybe the mm. performance was okay all along but at least you learn something. So it's like the, this performance work is a combination of actually improving something and learning something new, learning the, the Good point. stuff yeah. underneath so that the next time it comes up, you know what to do or you know what not to do, which is equally important. And uh, regarding the question, we had a fun story actually on one of the services um, where the bottleneck was and the, the number of network interrupts that uh, the operating system could do on one core. So the, mm -hmm. there, is, there is this optimization Ubuntu that it will bag only all, all, of, the, all of the interrupts to one core uh, on the CPU, because generally that's that's faster way to do it. But then the, the number of requests per second we were getting on that machine so high that just one core could not could not handle all mm -hmm. that. So we had to to increase that. I mean, of course, ninety nine percent of the time you never never ever have to know about that. Mm -hmm. But that one percent of the time, it's it's better when you do rather than you don't, and then you have no idea where to start looking at where the problem could be. So yeah, I think. So what what is the what is the hardware budget for Grammarly? I mean, do, do you guys get like 20 euro per month? So you have to squeeze all the performance <laughs> out of every machine or <laughs> these days, everything is cloud and, you know, like, oh, sure. You know, I'm going to throw it onto Lambda. Yeah, I, I don't care anymore. And yeah, actually, actually, that that's a valid point as well. I, I, I've talked about that uh, on the closure exchange in my talk so that hmm. it is it is all cloud nowadays and uh, Especially, especially if the problem you are dealing with is like embarrassingly parallel, and there yeah. is no shared state, so why not just spin a few extra machines and just just be done with yeah. it? And I already said that I think that it's a I have a conspiracy theory that's uh, that's a lie spread by Amazon and Google Cloud and all those other cloud <laughs> providers, so that people will buy more cloud for them. But in reality, in at least in my practice. There is no such thing as horizontal scaling and at least effortless horizontal scaling. So you're always like paying with, paying with something. So it could mm -hmm. be uh, operational overhead. So you have to, have to yeah. spin up new infrastructure to deal with those extra machines. Or suddenly, uh, it's like you thought you already solved the problem of monitoring. You have a graph graphite cluster for your 
25 machines, but then suddenly when there are 100 machines, your graphite yeah. cluster cannot deal with that. So all of your dashboards take like 10 minutes to load and yeah. your deployments are now, they take two hours to, to completely deploy. And if, if you botch a release, then it will like you will know only in 10 minutes that something is wrong because your monitoring system is is not good enough <laughs> delayed by 10 yeah, minutes yeah <laughs> and but then it's like already how the deploy is done and you have to roll it back ah, and it takes another yeah. hour so it, it it gets quite painful actually and yeah. on top of it you hire you hire more people to deal with that you hire devops mm -hmm. and infrastructure staff uh, those kind of people and uh, it costs even more money than just the extra machines that you're running so mm -hmm. I mean, I think it it still still makes sense to optimize just even even for the number of machines you need uh, for the service because it's it's never it's never free uh, mm -hmm. in terms of money in terms of mental health all those things. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when um when 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 I was working at Toyota they have a they have a thing uh, like a Japanese phrase in the manufacturing called heijonka. And, and what that means is evenness, you know, so smoothness. So to your point about like, you know, if, you, if you're not careful with all these edge systems, they become swamped. So the idea is that you always try and, you always try and you know, across the entire system, promote a kind of holistic uh, evenness so that, so that you are always emphasizing smooth throughput rather than, you know, one specific process, which is kind of going, going a lot faster. Because then you find that if you're, you know, if the, the front end process is going very fast, then all the back end systems start to get overwhelmed. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting architectural thought that I think, you know, as to how you do all the, the, the buffering at the right places and the, the throughputs. And, you know, so it, I think that's a general <clears throat> nice bit of advice to, to, to emphasize smoothness across your entire system, not just or performance across your entire system, not just one piece, you know. Yeah, makes sense. So um, I think uh, our friend of the show, Mr. Zach Oaks, is asking about good old days of uh, closure on Android. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hi, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, so I think it's it's seven years ago now uh, when I started uh, started participating in Google Summer of Code. Uh, working on closure on Android actually. And that, that yeah. started with my first mentor was Daniel Solano Gomez, uh, who is an amazing guy. And he, I think he still, uh, still contributes to, to the Google summer of code, uh, things on the closure part. At least he did a few years back. And then my, my second mentor was Zach Oaks and, uh, yeah. Back back in the days, he was I think he was a sole user of uh, <laughs> of the things I developed, just, so it yeah. it made sense for me to to pick him as a mentor. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a fun project. I kept it going for for years, and it was quite entertaining and fun as well. Uh, I was super hyped to have a running REPL on Android, and uh, I developed a couple of apps that way, and it was like completely different experience from what. Uh, from what Android tool tool chain offered back in the days, and uh, I think I think they still have nothing like that. I'm pretty pretty sure they don't. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I, I stopped working on Android platform for different reasons. So uh, those those projects kind of died out. But it, it was fun to do that back then. 
Yeah, I noticed uh, actually the, I can't remember his name now, unfortunately. I think it's Dimitri someone. Um, just the past couple of days on the Twitter feed said he, he's porting Replete, which is the Mike Fikes iOS um, REPL for for iOS. He's porting it to Android. And he's got a few screenshots. So so it seems like uh, the, the REPL for Android is coming back, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so timely uh, remembrance, timely memory there. Yeah. Yeah, so I think you can still download the foreclosure app for Android from the from the Play Play Market, and uh, all right. Yeah, I, I I did that, and it's actually it's like complete closure inside. So there is closure compiler inside, so you can uh, <laughs> you can solve foreclosure tasks from your Android even without the network or anything. It just it it wow. runs on the phone itself, and uh, yeah, a fun way to. Uh, to spend time on the subway or somewhere. <laughs> Did you do any performance analysis on that one? <laughs> uh, you, you, you might you think you, you're joking, but actually, <laughs> uh, two years uh, of uh, Google Summer of Code, I actually spent more not on the Android, but on the optimizing closure compiler that would produce uh, the code that would have faster load time and would be slightly faster right, okay. in a, at runtime as well. Uh, I also kind of uh, that that project is in slumber as well, uh, also for different reasons. But it was also quite fun to investigate that to to get why why closure gets to start so slowly. And uh, yeah, I still think there are things to be done in that regard. Uh, just mm. just needs some time and effort. So, are there any like a rule of thumbs for for people writing closure to to make sure that it will still continue going fast? Yeah. Well, as with everything in performance, the first rule of a thumb is to use the profiler to see like where where the problem, whether the biggest problem is. Uh, mm. Because the intuition is quite often wrong uh, in that regard. You might be thinking that this this part of code is to blame and you can spend like two days just micro-optimizing it, getting the most of it, but then uh, it was in some other place all along. So mm. the first the first thing is to use the profiler, and then that would tell you, most of the time, that would tell you a lot about what you have to do. Uh, but then, of course, there are there are different, uh, different things that could go wrong in the closure program in terms of performance. There is the, the reflection that you probably didn't want to to invoke or, or to to, yeah. to go into, or um, the the immutability of the data structures that you're using in that particular case that could get in the way, or there is stuff with math with boxed math that is very close to reflection in that regard. Uh, hmm. But yeah, profiler will get you half of the way to solving the problem. So um, before we move on to the next topic, uh, so how do you handle with all the there is a lot of discussion about closure 110 and specs and error messages and all that stuff. So what is your uh, opinion on uh, current state of error messages that are coming up in 110? I think there is significant improvements made already, uh, or do you think it is still debatable? Yeah, well, I, I can tell you that it's certainly better than 1.9. Uh, that, that's for sure with the, with the introduction of spec. I mean, I, I never had the problem with closure error messages. Actually, it's like it took me uh, a bit to get used to them. And then it's like you just visually do the pattern matching. It's like, 
okay, the the loan cannot be cast to IFN, okay, then yeah. means I tried to call the number or something. So it's not it's yeah. not ideal, uh, but then it wasn't a problem for me. And uh, with 1.9, all the all the specs blowing out in your face, uh, <laughs> that became a bit of a problem, yeah. more like mild annoyance or something. Something already taught, uh, said that on your podcast that they just stopped reading the error messages with 1.9. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. okay, something something is broken. Computer told me something is broken. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. go figure out what it is. Uh, yeah. And uh, 1.9 puts that back into the 1.10. Sorry, uh, puts that back into place. Uh, I'm I'm happy about that, at least. Yeah, nice. So um, I think we we are almost oh, one hour almost. Yeah, uh, or maybe over one hour. Um, we, we were just thinking because this is going to be our last episode for uh, for this year. Uh, I don't even remember when we started this. Maybe two years ago, or maybe I think so. Uh, it's been too long. <laughs> <laughs> 43 so nice. episodes. So. 43 episodes, yeah. So more or less uh, one, one and a half episode per month. So yeah. I think it's... Uh, um, so uh, it's it's a nice time to wrap up the year by reflecting on, you know, what happened in Closure for 2018. Um, so Alex, do you want to talk about how was Closure for 20, in 2018? Yeah, um, for me it was certainly certainly good. It was a good year for me in terms of using Clojure and uh, just uh, observing the new cool stuff that uh, came out from from different people. And uh, yeah, one of the major things is you already already mentioned the error messages. I'm happy not as much about the, the messages themselves, but that uh, Cognitact showed that. <clears throat> sorry. Uh, they showed that, uh, demonstrated that it's really uh, something that matters to them, and uh, they listen to the community opinion as as much as they can. And uh, actually, another another big thing that you already sure know that happened the these debate debates on uh, Twitter, then yeah. never ending ones that uh, yeah. Some some point uh, was tr- troublesome to just keep up with them. You you open the Twitter and you see another one, <laughs> and it was quite painful. Yeah, but uh, I think uh, I'm I'm happy that it came to an end. At least in my Twitter mm. feed, maybe I just unfollowed enough people. Yeah, yeah, but it ended, and I think. Uh, I think people made the correct uh, conclusions out of it, and we got a few uh, bigger explanations from from Rich Hickey and from Tim Baldrich as well. I think uh, Tech Talman also wrote a bit. So I think I think uh, people in general uh, won. Uh, I mean, it's like the the things you can read now and you can understand it better. So yeah. every, everything got better from it. I hope. Uh, I think that's that's an important thing that happened in 2018. Nice. And Ray, a recap uh, of 2018. Yeah, well, I'd agree with a lot of, I mean, everything that Alex said there. Um, and I think that for, for me, I mean, the, my highlights were like definitely the conferences. Um, I didn't get to the to the American conferences, but I went to um, 
to the closure days in Amsterdam, and that was really excellent. Some great speakers and just a great community again, you know, just lovely people, lots of ideas, lots of positivity. Um, and then myself and Alex met again at the um, the Closure X in London, which is also, you know, a superb um, conference. Uh, shout out to John who organizes that. Um, you know, they do a great job there. It's a great fun, very entertaining, um, lovely venue. The people at Skills might do a great job. Um, so, yeah, it was really nice. And uh, it was nice to see at the end of that conference that uh, Christophe Legrand, Christophe Grand and um, Bojidia, who was the most miserable person on our podcast ever, actually were celebrating with a beer about the the joining of NREPL and uh, UNREPL. <laughs> so the the NREPL, the the, rep, the the back-end REPL wars were seeming like calming down as well. So I think that was good. Um, so I think, you know, basically the community for me, I know I really enjoyed, um, you know, some of the bullshit on the, on the flame wars were annoying, but overall, I think the community has been really good this year, um, coming out with some great ideas and some great tools and some great stuff around documentation, Maria cloud, you know, th these kind of like tools that are gradually coming out around spec as well to make that more consumable. That's all good. I myself, um, have started to make, uh, this collaborative REPL for, um, you know, so I've become a kind of like tooling guy as well now. So that's been a fun time, you know, and I'm working full time with Clojure. So it's great to be doing it full time and as a hobby. So, you know, I've just been loving it really. Yeah. How about you, Vijay? Yeah, I think uh, obviously, as you said, the conferences were uh, super fun. I mean, that's where you get to talk to the community. Mm -hmm. And obviously Alex was there at uh, Dutch Closure Day, uh, opening the conference with a fantastic talk. Yeah. Um, and uh, Closure D in Berlin, uh, super fun. And um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, there, there are some, uh, it, it, the, the whole discussion on Twitter and then uh, the whole um, uh, people complaining about the community and all that stuff. And I think right before the show, we were just, um, I was just chatting with Alex that, you know, like, when people are complaining about it, that means we have we have like grown a lot, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, that means we became mainstream, which is which is pretty <laughs> awesome. Uh, the more people complain, that that means you know the bigger we are. <laughs> so, uh, but in general, I think it's it's been a fantastic community, and um, of course, I'm I'm doing a lot of closure stuff as well um, for a, for a um, NDA um, uh, something that I can't disclose. Um, uh, and then, of course, we have um, Dutch Closure Day coming up for the next year as well. Uh, there is, I mean, we just tweeted out, hey, we want to organize the uh, conference. And then hmm. people are reaching out to say that, hey, we want to sponsor, which is which is pretty amazing. Excellent, excellent. And yeah. um, we have 150 spots and we are almost are like 90 free tickets are gone already. Hmm. So that means there is a lot of pressure on us to, to run it. <laughs> and from the language wise, I think uh, a couple of things from Conj was really fun with the rebel, the, mm. the new thing and the yeah, datafying yeah. stuff, mm -hmm. which yeah, is uh, super cool. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit, uh, I think it's, it's I'm too much used to the open source shit. So we you know every time I see something that is, yeah, oh, we, we only have GitHub for issues. That, that's a bit of a, uh, kind of a strange thing to hear because uh, so many years of working in open source with JBoss tools and all that stuff, and mm. suddenly hear something that there is a tool that is available, but you know, it's not open source. Yeah, it's unconventional. Uh, yeah, exactly. But hey, you know, we use cloud shit, and nobody complains whether it is open source or not. So you know, yeah. Uh, well, GitHub is not open source, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and Jira and all all the shit that we use day in and day yeah. out. 
but uh, it's been a, I think it's it's a fantastic year and I'm looking forward to next year you know what what we are going to what the community is going to bring up and and most mm. recently um if you see the amount of people who are doing the advent of code enclosure mm. uh with with people sharing their uh, knowledge and everything um that 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 shows that you know there is a lot of um uh, happy people trying to learn closure mm. trying to do uh, amazing things with closure mm. so that's uh, that's 2018 for me and i hope uh, we'll continue doing this uh, uh, podcast and of course a uh, shout out to the two new podcasts the repel uh, by daniel, daniel Compton, yeah yeah it's really yeah. good that one. Uh, yeah. yeah and also the functional programming with closure podcast or something that i retweeted at some point so there is a lot of you know we are growing so this is a nice uh, mm-hmm. nice community to be in i think it's a fantastic year Watch out! Maybe maybe those are also close your weekend podcasts, and you will not be number one anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think we're we're not aiming for number one. It's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. We we are we we I think we are, we are like the uh, we'll we'll acquire them eventually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we're still the number one vegetarian closure podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, and it, I think we we are probably the only R-rated. <laughs> closure podcast with the amount of fucks and shits in the in the same uh, in the same episode. I think yeah. that, that that cannot be beaten anyway. So yeah. Merry yeah. fucking Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Happy holidays. <laughs> so um that's it from us for for this year, I think. So we'll be back uh, next year. And thanks a lot for joining Alex, taking time from your uh, I, I guess it's not Christmas holiday yet, uh, there. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's getting closer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and you have a new church now or something like that, or or in in Ukraine. And you what? A, a new they're forming a new church in Ukraine. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's probably yeah. It. Let's <laughs> talk did, about that afterwards. Yeah. About that one. <laughs> yeah, but uh, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it was was yeah, very glad course. to be here. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. I just say that so, you're wearing a Christmassy jumper, which is you can't hear on the podcast, but yeah, YouTubers yeah. I, I enjoy that. You know, snowflakes and, and all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so very, I, very closure. I'm in the in the right mood. Yeah, yeah, yeah perfect. I, yeah, I, I just want to to uh, say the the last few words. So regarding regarding the flame wars and stuff, uh, I think just to offer a contrary p- opinion, I think we we should cherish and uh, like protect and respect our open source maintainers. Uh, so at least for the fact that Clojure has been maintained for 11 years straight by mm-hmm. a, f- a small bunch of individuals, uh, not backed by like any corporation or something. And uh, just, just doing that without burning out and just wanted to keep doing that. I think we, uh, that's at least a thing to to respect them for and to support them for. So that's what I plan to do uh, the next year and years to come and encourage everyone to do that as well. Well said. Awesome. Well said. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. So that's it from us for this um, this year, uh, yeah. episode number 43 with uh, Alexander Yakushev. And uh, we'll see you every one in January, I hope. Yes. Yeah, bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye.